Hi, and welcome to Understanding Dysphagia Podcast, a 10-part series with Dysphagia Outreach Project. I'm your host, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, regularly the host of First Bite Fed, Fun, Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. In honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, the Dysphagia Outreach Project has pulled some of their phenomenal leaders together to share their knowledge with the world in hopes of raising awareness about dysphagia across the life continuum, as well as raising awareness regarding the dynamic volunteer work that Dysphagia Outreach Project does every day for individuals of all ages with dysphagia. And y'all, today's episode is dedicated to neurodegenerative dysphagia. And I got to be honest, I'm just happy I could get out neurodegenerative because I'm on the tiny end of that (laughs) spectrum. So without further ado, please allow me to introduce today's guest. Maggie Doniker is a medical speech language pathologist who specializes in a range of diagnoses, including dysphagia, speech and dysarthria, and cognitive communication. She has worked in the acute and subacute settings. Maggie attended Ohio University for her Bachelor's of Science and received her Master's of Science from Bowling Green State University. Due to her passion for providing an excellent standard of care, she has been awarded seven ASHA ACE Awards, which are given to those who complete over 70 contact hours in a six-month period for continuing education per year. Maggie was also a guest on the Swallow Your Pride podcast, episode 117, which has been downloaded over 12,000 times. Maggie is a board member of the Dysphagia Outreach Project, which is the nonprofit that we're talking about today that provides services and supplies to those with dysphagia. She's also a facilitator for Dysphagia Digest of Florida, the only swallowing support group supported by the National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders in the state of Florida. And she's looking forward to publication of recent research and presenting at a state, and I'm going to go ahead and put it out there, national level. Katie Goleen is a medical speech-language pathologist who currently works full-time in the acute care setting and has experience in inpatient rehab and skilled nursing settings. She specializes in various diagnoses, including dysphagia, speech, language, and cognitive communication. Katie attended Central Michigan University for her bachelor's and received her master's in speech language pathology from the University of Toledo in Ohio. I've been there. They have really good fried (laughs) fish. She is a first-time ASHA ACE Award winner because she wholeheartedly believes in providing the best care for her patients. She was featured on the Swallow Your Pride podcast also. Katie is the Director of Communications for Dysphagia Outreach Project, and she is passionate about helping all persons with dysphagia to receive the help and care that they need to improve their quality of life. So ladies, huzzah, thank you for coming. Also, Toledo was freaking cold. So Maggie, I think you got the sweet end of the deal down in Florida. (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm actually from Ohio. Originally, I hail from Ohio. I was raised in Ohio and things. And yeah, right now it's like 80 some degrees or such, or possibly even 90 so it's, yeah, it is nice that it's nice and warm down here now. <laughs> and then Katie, too, being in St. Petersburg, you know, her and I are actually within the same area. Wait, yeah, I moved both from of the you left? Down here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, that's smart. I moved from Virginia to South Carolina. And while I appreciate the palms, ooh, South Carolina's got a lot of process improvements on a lot of social levels that we need to work on. <laughs> so, like, I'm going to accept the mac and cheese and palm trees. How about that? Yes. Okay. So, before we go into this lovely topic, 
that's incredibly complex. I feel like it's above my pay grade. So thanks for doing exactly what it is that y'all do. But can y'all talk to me about how y'all became a speech pathologist and then decided to focus in on serving adults with complex etiologies and comorbidities? So it actually all started when I was in undergraduate. I actually failed organic chemistry. I was studying (laughs) to actually be a dietitian. So I reached out to my father, who is actually a uh, physical therapist. And Mm -hmm. he assisted me with all aspects of like life in general and still does too. Very knowledgeable man. And he actually told me about speech language pathology. I took one course and I've been hooked ever since. And I actually think looking back on it now, the reason why I chose the adult population was because my dad actually showed me a lot about the impact that you have on individuals who are older and have like kind of given their life to society and kind of assisted with raising other people and so on and so forth and how you can give back to them. So I think that that's a little bit of the reason why I uh, wanted to work with adults. Nice. Okay. Katie, what's your story there, love? So I went into undergrad, not really sure what I wanted to do with my life. And (laughs) my cousin was actually a couple of years ahead of me at Central Michigan, and she was studying speech pathology. And she kind of told me a little bit about it. And like Maggie, I took an intro class and I was just like fell in love with it. And funny enough, I was always going towards peds, I thought, at the beginning, because teaching was another one of my, like, maybe careers. And Mm -hmm. then after taking some of the more adult and medical courses, I kind of fell in love with that population and seeing the progress that my patients made during my externship semester just really got me hooked. And here we are. See, I always knew I wanted to do dysphagia, but I thought for sure I would work with adults. And I did. I mean, my CF was with adults, but one thing led to another. And now I'm down with the tiny pint-sized boogers. And when we have guest speakers at our university come through and they're talking about laryngectomies and all these things, my stomach just goes, nope, the boogers are too big. I'm out. I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) So I can say potty and tinkle. And like, I don't feel like that's really like appropriate with adults, but in my world, we can say potty and tinkle time. So like, you know, see inner boy mom, we love to use fun adjectives. Okay. But All right, we have a boatload to cover in this hour, and I am so excited to learn from y'all because even though we don't treat this, I mean, our field, we're called to be lifelong learners. And I mean, as y'all demonstrated with the confirmation of your ASHA ACE Awards, but that's what we are. Y'all, every single day in our field, you need to have your cup filled. And if you feel like you know it all, sweetheart, let me tell you something, you don't, and that's okay because- you get to turn around and ask a colleague for a question. And it's very humbling to be in that position where you can ask someone, but the joy that you find when someone reciprocates and answers it, now you have a lifelong learning friend. And that's great. Okay. Tiny Woo, That's why Katie and I are together. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> 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 lifelong learning friend. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> All right. Now, Katie, I think you're going to start us off, love. So can you break us down for us? What is it? I like how I took my reading glasses off. Let's put those back on. What <laughs> is a neurologic disease or disorder? And how can a baseline neurologic diagnosis turn into something that's neurodegenerative? All right. So for this one, I pulled out my good old Merriam-Webster dictionary for a definition of neurogenic. 
So it is forming, originating in, or controlled by nervous tissue or Mm -hmm. induced or modified by nervous factors, especially disordered because of abnormally altered neural relations. So these are like the motor pathways in the brain, neural pathways. Mm -hmm. So according to the Brain and Spine Foundation, the term neurological comes from neurology the branch of medicine that deals with problems affecting the nervous system. And the word neuro means nerve and nervous system. Some neurological problems or conditions are present from birth or they're congenital. Some are hereditary or genetic, and others have a sudden onset due to injury or illness, such as a head injury or stroke or a cancer of the brain or spine. There are over 470 known neurological conditions. Some conditions, such as head injury and stroke, with the right treatment and support, may make a good recovery. Other conditions, such as muscular dystrophy and motor neuron disease, are degenerative, or Mm -hmm. meaning symptoms worsen over time. A neurological condition may often result in some degree of disability. So some examples of those neurological diseases that we as speech pathologists see are Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, encephalitis, Bell's palsy. There are a few national organizations that represent neurological diseases. The Neurological Research Fund is a nonprofit organization devoted to supporting supporting research, treatment, and education of neurological diseases. The National Institute of Health and the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Their mission is to seek fundamental knowledge about the brain and nervous system and to use that knowledge to reduce the burden of neurological disease. Everyone is... Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just thinking, when you said Bell's palsy, I didn't... Mm -hmm. So that's a new one for me because my pop had Bell's palsy. Bless him. That man, he he's the reason I was able to afford to go to grad school, but he would get stuck on certain words and he always called pants britches. But w- the way he got stuck, his face would kind of pull sometimes and it would not come out as britches. And he would say, baby girl, you got to pull up your britches. But again, it didn't always come out the most accurate way. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, I laugh about this because at 13, I was like, pop said a bad word. And he was like the most God fearing man you'd ever met in your life. But I had not perceived that beyond just like, I don't know, like a poor pronunciation of a word. And then my immediate follow-up is my dad told me you got Bell's palsy by kissing ugly girls and pop kissed an ugly girl. But I don't think that that's an accurate <laughs> cause of Bell's palsy. I don't know if y'all do know an accurate cause of Bell's palsy. Please feel free to educate the young lady awkwardly talking into the microphone. <laughs> but continue. Sorry. Go no, ahead. No you're, you're doing great with the list. Yeah. <laughs> no, no problem. Bell's palsy is like it involves your nerves. And Maggie, I don't know if you know a little bit more about it. Yeah, Could so it have been when he was kicked by a cow? <laughs> Not necessarily. It's kind of like an ad, okay. uh, like a rapid onset of mild weakness okay. within the facial nerve, causing like facial droop and difficulty. Yes, just in general, kind of manifesting and moving. The musculature around there's not necessarily 100% a cause for this disease process itself. It just kind of occurs, and you do want to kind of see a doctor just to see a little bit more about what is going on. Sometimes it actually is leading to some sort of like infection. 
of some sort, or possibly it could be due to a flu symptoms, meningitis possibly too. So it always is important, like when something sudden does occur, you do want to definitely get into the doctor to see what's going on. So that way, it's not something even more significant, such as a stroke or something along those lines as well. So obviously, any sort of like sudden changes can lead to for sure, like an onset of trying to get into needing, needing to see a physician. See, I just, I cracked it up too. He like literally got kicked in the head by a cow one time when he was milking it. So like, I mean, we just, you know, this is why we have these conversations. It was not being kissed by an ugly girl or I mean, the cow probably did him in as well, but uh, yeah. Okay. Anywho. All right. Back to the National Institute of Health and Stroke Disorders for Support Systems. I apologize for the interjection. You're fine. No, I just, you know, everyone's affected by neurological conditions in some form or another, whether you have a disorder, you know someone who has a disorder, or you work with patients that have a disorder. So today, Maggie and I are going to pick a few specific ones to talk about and share a little bit about, namely ALS, Parkinson's, and (laughs) Guillain-Barre. Not Gilligan's Island. Not right. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason why we chose these three disease processes is just because the Parkinson's Awareness Month was actually last month in April. And nice. here within Southwest Florida, particularly, there are two very strong nonprofit organizations that do support individuals with Parkinson's, and those are NeuroChallenge as well as Parkinson's Place. Wait, NeuroChallenge? NeuroChallenge. <laughs> mm-hmm. In Parkinson's place. They're two very strong organizations within my area that really do do a lot of wonderful support for individuals with Parkinson's disease. Fantastic. I just found them on the wild world of the internet and social media. Wow. They have a boatload of resources. Okay. Yeah. Quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Most excellent. And I would like, normally when you pick a disease, it's because it's got something, you've had a patient or a case or a loved one. So, I mean, when you go through, if you don't mind giving us some personal experiences, because that's, it's those case study pictures that pull it home. You know what I mean? Sure. So with Parkinson's disease, especially to Katie and I have both impacted individuals within the multiple settings that we've worked Mm -hmm. and have had some great successes, not only with like voice and communication, but with swallowing as well and kind of providing that insight. Recently, actually, I did a presentation for NeuroChallenge. They did a whole month long educational series and I did talk to them in general about Parkinson's and how the swallow is affected within Parkinson's disease. And then with um, Guillain-Barre syndrome, their awareness month is actually this month here in May. And uh, this was one of the first patients I saw within my externship in graduate school with one of my really strong mentors, Mary Stofieri. And she is and was a fantastic mentor. And she really taught me a lot about the disease and how we can affect. And the woman that I worked with, I believe actually was my age now. So I'm 35. So it was pretty interesting kind of looking back on that and how that had affected her and then learning about how much of an impact we had on her recovery. Wait, the patient was 35 with Guillaume? I believe so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, that just seems really young. Okay, wait. Okay, I'm going to get ahead of myself because I get excited by case studies. All right, let's start at the top. Do y'all want to start with Parkinson's disease? Sure. Sure, we can start talking about that. Okay. okay, so according to the National Institute of Aging in 2017, this is a neurogenitive disorder that affects predominantly dopamine-producing neurons. So dopamine, just in general, is a neurotransmitter 
and it's part of your nervous systems that's used to send message between cells. And this symptom starts gradually around the age of 70 years old, but it can occur earlier and then get worse over time. Mostly it affects men. And about 80% of the dopamine-producing cells are actually lost by the time that the motor symptoms appear. And according to the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Strokes in 2020, at that time, it's actually believed that both that there could be a genetic as well as an environmental factor that leads to the development of Parkinson's disease overall. Though there's no definitive cause out there, it's, it's a little bit of a multitude of things. There are four primary symptoms of Parkinson's disease. There is tremors, known as the shaking, which is the characteristic rhythm back and forth motion, which can cause changes within vocal quality, pitch, and volume. The rigidity, so the muscles become stiff or a resistance in movement where muscles remain constantly tense and contracted. There's bradykinesia, which is the slowing of spontaneous and automatic movements that it can make it difficult to perform simple tasks or rapidly perform routine movements. So these movements are stiff or rigid muscles leading to difficulty within chewing, swallowing, managing secretions, or even articulating words. There's also postural instability, which is that impaired balance, which causes changes in the posture that can increase the risk of falls. And there's some Mm -hmm. other symptoms as well, which can include difficulty swallowing, chewing, speaking, emotional changes, urinary problems, and or even constipation, dementia and other cognitive problems do occur, fatigue, and even sleeping disorders. And so though individuals with Parkinson's may have a combined like physical exam, neurological exam, and medical history, as well as signs and symptoms as kind of what assists with the diagnosis. There's not necessarily per se like a lot of imaging or laboratory results and PD results are degenerative. And this is due to that limitation within the neurological symptoms and networking. So you do really have to take into consideration that these individuals have the opportunity to do some compensatory strategies in order to communicate more effectively and move dynamically, even outside of speech language pathology, you know, occupational and physical therapists as well, obviously have a very large impact on this population, as well as all the populations that we'll be talking about today. Okay, so when I think of, and I don't think I've had the pleasure of working with an adult with Parkinson's in bare six, so like seven years, (laughs) but I've had the pleasure of working with several pediatric patients that had neurodegenerative disease. Basically, if you need me, you don't necessarily want me because your little one's not doing great, right? And oftentimes I get called in for the palliative care cases that transition to hospice, which is hard, but it's what I'm built for. And what I find is that often there's this misconception on our end, and by our, I'm referencing the peds world, that we have to do like strength training and, and drills and all of these things. But for patients that, you know, I, I mean, I had a set of siblings that as the axon grew, the myelin sheath couldn't keep pace. And so what they were able to do today, they wouldn't necessarily be able to do in two weeks. So it was all quality of life and diet modifications and so when you when I was like writing plan of cares, my plan of cares weren't for advancing in viscosities. It wasn't for, you know, going up. I'm thinking of like the ITSY pyramids. I mean, at the time we didn't have ITSY, but you know what I mean, right? 
And it was transitioning to eye gaze because loss of speech was inevitable. But what is like the trajectory for those patients with Parkinson's? Like, do you drill for therapy? Because I would, I mean, I honestly don't know. Like, is that where we do Lee Silverman voice? Is Lee Silverman voice treatment for Parkinson's or is that Alzheimer's? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah. So Lee Silverman is a modality that is utilized in order to assist in general with the voice maintenance, as well as there's some indirect impact per the research based off of swallowing and things along those Mm -hmm. lines. But primarily what that's used for is, is the dynamicness in general of communication effectiveness, as well as voice treatment. That's a, it's, there's also another modality too, called the speak out program. Oh, I have heard of that. Voice project. Yeah. So there are two very dynamic interventions for individuals with Parkinson's disease. And what that is for is, is that it's not only just in general about a life impact, kind of progressing through life in a different way, but it's also the communication awareness enhancement and overall development of functioning to provide the stronger, more efficient expression as well as dynamics in relation to the voice. So these individuals that we do provide these two different modalities to are greatly impacted due to the increase in their sensory awareness breathing aspects, as well as their own control of what they are able to do. I'm trained in both, actually, um, certified within both. And both of these aspects are very dynamic based off of the way that you approach the patient and how they really do change overall in their acquisition of communication. Hmm. So coming back to your original question, there is a dynamic there where we are assisting them overall in there are levels of increased coordination, increased sensory awareness that we provide that they are able to carry with them. Obviously, as you can take into consideration, each person is going to demonstrate Parkinson's disease with symptom with the similar symptoms and so forth. However, at the same time, too, they are individuals themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So these individuals may not, quote, lose those motor plannings within the few weeks and so forth, depending on the level and the progression of where they are within the disease process. Some people are able to maintain these for quite a while until potentially that disease process takes over from there. So each individual is a little bit different in that way. We do do rehabilitative as well as compensatory interventions. Okay. So that's what I want to know, because when I think of like compensatory for these patients, my step-grandfather, oh, He's a feisty one. He was a retired army drill sergeant that subsequently found Jesus. So he's had an interesting walk. Lots of lots of interesting tales. And they most recently caught him in his memory unit in the assisted living unit with (laughs) my stepmom got a call and they were like, there was an incident involving your father and a lovely lady friend he has picked up. And she was like, oh God, what did he do now? (laughs) So (laughs) nice to know that he still gets around in his upper 80s. So huzzah for Pampal. But he has Parkinson's, right? And or something like this. And he has that tremor in his hand. And he's a very, I mean, he was a drill sergeant, right? Like he has a presence, for lack of a better phrase, like stage theatrics. And so what they started doing was letting out a button in his sleeve and putting like a tiny weight on his wrist to help ground him. So he stopped having such tremors. So he didn't make a mess when he was feeding himself. 
And I was like, Hey, I mean, if it works, it works, but like, is that, should they be doing that? I mean, like, I know I can't specifically ask about that particular case, but like, do we still do that in our world of therapy? I mean, do y'all get to use the OB robot, that button where the spoon scoops? I have so many questions because I don't, I'm not in y'all in the adult world. So I haven't had the opportunity. I don't know about you, Katie. I haven't had the opportunity to see that OB robot necessarily in place. I have not either. I I want to try it so bad. I know that it's definitely out there. So there are quote adaptive equipment in relation to Parkinson's disease in order to allow them to be more self-sufficient when it comes to scooping and bringing hand to mouth. Sometimes weighted things do assist. Sometimes quote strapping the material to the hand makes it assistive. There's also scoop plates, divided plates, sometimes even like particular cups and so on and so forth too can sometimes be more assistive when it comes to those motor planning aspects when it comes to eating. I know that in general too, within the swallow, you know, you're going to have limitations as well, such as difficulty chewing, hard, like leading to piecemeal deglugation, reduced tongue control, tongue pumping, limited oral containment and bolus formation some drooling as well too, which can kind of all affect just the oral phase of the swallow. Mm-hmm. And for those kinds of things, what, what is and can be done too is, is the use of external modalities such as the IOP and the tongueometer, the McNeil dysphagia therapy protocol, neuromuscular electrical stimulation can sometimes even also assist too in relation to that. Do you have an IOP? Do you get to use that? I unfortunately don't have the IOP in general, but I know that that is a intervention that can be used to assist those individuals who need that modality and so forth. I haven't had the opportunity in my clinical career to actually have access to that and so forth. So I try to use the McNeil dysphagia therapy protocol, the use as well of you know traditional therapies, education based off of, as well as actually getting the person to be aware that they actually may need to swallow. So the swallow in general is involuntary and voluntary, correct? So with Parkinson's disease, sometimes that involuntary as well as voluntary, can both be impacted. And sometimes too, when it comes to drooling and so forth, it's not that there's more secretion within the mouth per se, or Mm -hmm. more saliva. It's actually potentially just not only the containment, but the awareness that the patient may actually Mm -hmm. need to be swallowing. So it's kind of- Just that sensation Yeah. So it's kind of gearing them into and kind of having them become aware of that sensation, which leads them to then actually indicating more swallows potentially which can assist with that oral clearance to potentially decrease the swallow overall. So my synopsis, my takeaway is that in general, as Parkinson's disease progresses, their overall interoception, how they feel within their body deteriorates. Like proprioception is how your body interacts with the world outside of you. Interoception is how you engage with the world interiorly. That basically it's like a quieting of all of their nerve interactions. And as a clinician, we come in and kind of wake everything back up or teach them how to focus in and try to keep it awake. Does that make sense? So it's a motor and sensory in relation to a lot of the times as well. It is like the motor planning aspect of just the coordination within the aspects of the swallow overall. So it's okay. it's a little bit of everything. So we're reassisting with that motor 
awareness, motor planning, motor coordination in order to assist with that airway closure. So increasing that safety of the swallow, as well as the efficiency. So how the pharyngeal phase of the swallow will clear the bolus just in general as well too. So it's a multiplicital. It's not necessarily just one thing versus another. It's a little bit of both. This is so complex and amazing. Hmm. And that's just one disease. Okay. So what do, do you have a favorite memory of working with the patients with Parkinson's? Like, is there one that you're just like, I will carry that love that one with me all the days of my lives? You know, there's not necessarily just one. I feel as though that just with working with the population in general is just very glorifying when you're actually able to make that impact, when you are able to, when that patient in general, due to the interventions that you utilize, the education that you provide, are able to increase their quality of life as well as the efficiency of the swallow and the safety of the swallow in order for them to continue to enjoy their everyday activities, especially when it comes to eating. And communication as well. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Lovely. Okay. Can we switch to the next one? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to talk a little bit about ALS and my experience. I actually chose this because when I, or I've worked with several patients with ALS in my short career, Mm -hmm. even though it is a very rare disease. And when I was in grad school during my externship, I was part of an ALS interdisciplinary team that followed these patients throughout the course of their disease process. So they would meet with myself, the neurologist, other therapies, so physical and occupational therapy, the dietitian, and we would all kind of follow them. I believe they came in once a month or maybe every few months to kind of Mm -hmm. check in where they're at. But ALS or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, it's also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. It's a motor neuron disease that impacts the upper motor neurons, which are in the brain, and the lower motor neurons, which are in the spinal cord and the brain stem. These individuals will have both upper motor neuron signs, which is like spasticity or tightness in a muscle, slowness of movement, poor balance and incoordination. And they also have lower motor neuron signs. So this is muscle weakness, muscle atrophy or shrinkage of muscles, and some twitching or fasciculations. And eventually, degeneration of the cortical spinal tracts, the neurons in the motor cortex and brainstem, and within the anterior horn cells in the spinal cord occurs. So this is the degenerative part of the disease. Mm-hmm. According to the Mayo Clinic, ALS is inherited in 5 to 10% of people. For the rest, the cause is unknown. There are two common presentations of ALS. We have limb onset and bulbar onset. A hallmark feature of ALS and limb onset is progressive muscle weakness without sensation loss, typically starting in a single limb. So they'll notice it in their arm or their leg, just like they'll start noticing some weakness there. My mom's absolute best friend has ALS and they, they thought she had a stroke because her leg just went numb and so they rushed her in for a stroke and that's how they started down the diagnosis process because it wasn't a stroke and she's now not doing well. Yeah. But, yeah. But mm-hmm. continue. Sorry, that one hits home. That one hits really close to home. And typically that type of onset is, you know, about 80% of the cases we see. of cases present as bulbar onset, which affects the muscles of speech, the vocal quality, and swallowing, causing dysarthria and dysphagia. 
So that's typically when we see those patients. So when you were referencing the patients that you've had the pleasure of working with, are you seeing more bulbar onset or more limb fatigue? Um, I've seen both. The ones that I've worked with for ongoing therapy are the more bulbar onset patients. You know, I've done evaluations with patients. When I worked in skilled nursing, we had one patient that I remember came in and she was limb onset. So she was still, her speech was fine. Her swallowing was fine. It was really just like her, her motor control and not being able to walk and So when I think of Parkinson's, I think of a a geriatric onset. Like I think of older people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Like grandparent age, but with ALS, I mean, is that, is that, I feel like it happens younger, like people in their fifties. Yeah. I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe the average age is like 55, but it can also happen in their thirties. Like some people have been known to be younger, but yeah, the average age is around their fifties. Wow. That sure does make me appreciative for the very sore knee from running with goose this morning for the 5k. (laughs) So I mean, I'm not allowed to complain about it being swollen now. Shush. All right. (laughs) I mean, it hurts. Not going to lie. I'm going to fuss about this. I almost said something different, but yes. Okay. Apologies. Back to bulbar dysphagia for ALS. I mean, does it hit everything? Is it piecemeal deglutition like Parkinson's or is it like a totally different presentation? It's like that slowness that I talked about earlier, like the slowness of movement, muscle weakness and muscle atrophy. So more like slurring of speech and poor coordination of muscles for swallowing. And honestly, it it, it affects their breathing and that affects their mm-hmm. swallowing a lot. Mm-hmm. We know that coordination of breathing and swallowing go together. And so, you know, as they're having more difficulty breathing, they're more prone for aspiration. With my peds patients, what I find is my patients that have neurodegenerative, we're supposed to have that you chew or you suck and then you have that your swallow followed by like the apneic period followed by an exhale but with my patients that have peds neurodegenerative that apneic period isn't necessarily followed by the exhale sometimes it's followed by an inhale so any residue at like follicular piriforms like they just suck it straight in and you're like well that's not how that is supposed to work because we're supposed to exhale to try to you know protect the airway. So when you explain like with the breathing, are they having like shallow, short, rapid breathing? Is it, can you paint a picture for me there? Because I don't know what I'm looking at. Yeah. It's just, it's like their muscles are weak and they just, you know, when we, like if something goes down the wrong pipe, our our body's natural response to that is to cough and that cough hopefully brings it back out. They just, they cannot get the respiratory support enough to produce that cough. So they have that reduced airway protect, yeah, airway protection. But you know, (laughs) the the dysphagia from ALS results from weakness and or the spasticity of the muscles of deglutition, including the muscles of mastication, the tongue, the lips, the pharynx, the larynx. So, you know, poor coordination of the food within the mouth difficulty chewing their food. So you might need to 
you know, we're getting into treatment a little bit here, but modifying the consistency of food to make it safer for them, but also kind of working with them on that respiratory support to work on that cough reflex to help Mm -hmm. them protect their airway. Do you ever get to, sorry, I jumped straight to therapy, but do you ever get to use the straws that are like a one-way valve or they like, when you suck the bolus into the straw, it holds it in the straw? Have you seen those? Those are really cool. And I don't understand how the ball bearing doesn't get swallowed, but like it stays in the straw. (laughs) Are you talking about like the safe straws? Yes. Yeah, I have used those before. Not with ALS, my ALS patients, I don't think. But yeah, I mean, those are really good if you just, if somebody has difficulty controlling the amount that they're intaking, because that, you know, helps with controlling it. But they are. And then I always want, how do they get them cleaned? Like the mom and me, like how do you actually clean that straw out, right? Because I mean, if it's going to hold it in there, like wouldn't it hold like the dishwasher detergent in there? And then are you sucking up the dishwasher? Like this is where my head goes, but yes. (laughs) Well, they all kind of, you know, come apart in different little pieces. So you can clean all the little pieces of them, which makes it easier. (laughs) That's as complex. The first time I actually, as a parent exhausted, tried to break down a Dr. Brown's (laughs) bottle and put it back together. I was like, I cannot figure this out. And Christian's like, you swear by these things at work. How can we not know how to put it back together? I was like, I gave birth, dude. Like, leave me alone. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Okay. What, What else about our ALS little ones? So little ones, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's ingrained in your brain. I'm sure (laughs) it is. I'm so sorry. (laughs) So, you know, we can kind of talk or start leading into the treatment of ALS, but difficulty with swallowing can lead to malnutrition and need for supplementation. You know, we talk about, and not just with ALS, but really with all our dysphagia patients, we have the three pillars of aspiration pneumonia from Dr. John Ashford. I'm not sure if you're familiar with those at all. Lay it on us. But they are, you know, the presence of a swallowing impairment. So is the patient aspirating, which we can only know from an instrumental for sure if they're aspirating. The second pillar is a weakened immune system. So your overall health as a person, how active you are. And then the third pillar is your oral health. So if you have a swallowing impairment and you are aspirating, if you have a weakened immune system and you have poor oral care, oral health, all of these three things combined lead to a higher risk of pneumonia, which is what we are watching out for in our ALS patients with the bulbar onset. But ALS can also affect the voice, the communication, their cognitive function and their regulation of emotions or the pseudobulbar effect. So going into treatment, we have Dr. Emily Plowman has done a lot, has done several studies on the use of EMST or expiratory muscle strength training. So there's... Yeah, you've heard of this. <laughs> I, I want this for my peds patients. In my head, I see this research coming through where like the device is connected to like a video game because like, how are you going to convince a little one with CP that like this is actually like beneficial because it makes, or am I like some of my kiddos that have like dual diagnosis with ASD, but the noise is like God awful. Sometimes it sounds like a squeaky duck collar and that would send <laughs> off because of like the auditory stimuli. But like, imagine if somebody out there do the research on this. Imagine if the EMST output 
input was connected to a video game where they like pop balloons on a screen or like a clown exploded. I mean, like, I don't (laughs) like clowns, sorry, but like the possibilities of that correlation for our peds population are just Yes, I've heard of EMST. Continue. Yeah, Sorry. I think you're onto something there. <laughs> I know, right? I just don't know how to research that. But somebody somewhere make that happen and then call me and let me know. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, so this device is used to specifically target the strength of the muscles of expiration in an effort to improve the cough effectiveness and to preserve function. So I mentioned before that Dr. Emily Pummen has published several articles regarding the use of EMST within the ALS population. It is utilized to maintain subglottic air pressure generation. So this is like the pressure coming up from below to get that cough out and to maintain their airway clearance ability. So, you know, they can prevent aspiration and choking. EMST applied early in the course of ALS has been shown to actively engage the expiratory and submental musculature to deter disuse atrophy and to prolong more effective cough function, airway protection, swallowing, and functional oral intake. So, you know, we say with most of these populations, like the earlier they can get involved with therapy, the better mm-hmm. in order to kind of help them maintain their function, yeah, improve their outcomes, help them maintain their function for as long as possible. We know that these are degenerative diseases and that they are going to get worse over time. And our job is to help them along the way to make sure that they can hold on to that function for as long as they can. Okay. So I just have to ask a personal question of both of you. Do you ever feel like two thirds of what we do is just counseling the patient or their caregiver and giving functional hope? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that's part of it. I think too, that it is like education just in general and expectation to a degree as well. I recently took a CEU course and I had modalities in relation to how you also don't necessarily want to set up like the patient either to either potentially not reach the goal or just say, Oh, Hey, you're never going to be able to do this ever because that can affect them too. So it's a little bit of that balancing act of, yes, this is going to be tough. This is going to be very difficult. These are the things that we're going to do in order to reach the goals that we can together. So there's that definitely that dynamics in relation to counseling education to allow for realistic goal setting, for empowerment too, at the same time as well, and to allow just that increased overall quality of life. I feel as though that what's so wonderful about our profession is, is we are in like the thick of everyday life. Like it's socialization, it's eating, it's being heard when you are either arguing your point or sharing a passion in being empathizing with somebody when like a death occurs, you know, we're, we're part of those very intricate details. So that I find is definitely one of those strategies that we can use to really maximize that is, is education on, okay, you know, you might want to be in when you're utilizing something more effective to enjoy those parts of life. These are some strategies that you can use or some considerations Especially when it comes to Parkinson's, for example, sometimes we try to encourage our families to eat potentially before they go to a social event. 
So that way they get the meal and nutrition that they need prior to going. So that way they don't have that pressure if eating is challenging for them. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. definitely education and empowerment on those things, I think, is definitely a part of what we do. What course do you take? Because now I want to take it because it sounds great. Oh, the course that I took recently that kind of talked about that? Um, Sure. So it's Walt Fritz's manual therapy course. It was in Asheville, North Carolina. It is the voice and swallowing course, which I connected with based off of just that idea of, oh my gosh, of course that makes sense. Like, And the course in general too is very beneficial for the patients that we see. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh-huh. Hmm. See? Huzzah. <laughs> okay. All right. Because like, I don't, I don't know. I just, on my end, I've got parents sometimes that are like, hey, we have this disease. However, we want to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, yes. But baby steps yeah. and then making sure that the, that's hard because I want to, it's hard, but I also have a special needs brother-in-law who's 44. He has microcephaly, ASD, CP, and a cortical vision impairment. So like the man's got like all the things. And so, and they told my mother-in-law, take him home, make him comfortable. He might make it two weeks. Wow. Right. And now, he, I mean, he's feisty. He's sassy. I mean, He's addicted to Power Rangers, like can tell you everything about every single one of them that was ever created. Excellent. um, That's awesome. Yes. It's quite the collection, might I? I mean, I'm pretty sure the man could retire and like live off of the proceeds of all of the Power Rangers he's collected for the last 33 years. Excellent. But, right? But helping families navigate the end goal for that dysphagia, that's a piece that I struggle with. How do we tell the next round of clinicians? You can't just teach that clinical counseling piece in school. Like Mm -hmm. that's trial by fire, but yet you still want to set those student clinicians up for success. Also, soapbox, everybody that's listening, we have one more neurodegenerative disease to get to. However, if you are listening, please, our profession needs you. Please volunteer to be a clinical supervisor and pay it forward. So soapbox. All right. We only have like 10 minutes. So let's get to the third and final, the Gilly, um, go ahead and say it. Yes. Wait, Katie, did I get everything covered? I'm so sorry. Yeah, just like one more little thing. I mean, we talked, we just talked about supporting them and their needs, helping them to maintain function. But doing intensive exercises is contraindicated with ALS because it can actually speed up motor neuron degeneration. And then eventually we might have to compensate for loss of function, including like use of a PEG tube for nutrition. Hmm. Sometimes a feeding tube can be your best friend. So that's also a hard conversation. And that is an episode in and of itself. But we'll cross that bridge one day in the future. So yes. Okay. On to the fancy one that I cannot say. Sure. So Guillain-Barre syndrome, also known as GBS, can be seen actually at any age, either with children or within adults. And for this talk, we're primarily just going to be focusing on the adult population when it comes to research studies and so on and so forth from the educational aspect of this. So this is a rare neurological disorder in which the body's immune system actually attacks the peripheral nervous system, typically following a preceding infection, such as influenza, Epstein-Barr, Zika, actually COVID-19. There's two articles that actually came out in 2020 that kind of has some representation within that. HIV, hepatitis A, B, C, and E. Surgery and or traumas have even lived to develop some sort of a GBS symptomatology. 
So the infection causes the immune system to overreact and attack the peripheral nervous system. So this immune system response can be directly towards the myelin or the axon of the peripheral nerve, resulting in the demyelinating and axonal form of the GBS. So there are three types of this disease. There's the acute inflammatory demyelinating. Here we go. This is another big one. Polyridicular neuropathy. So the AI. Wow. Yep. Say that five times fast. Yeah, thank <laughs> you for um, the win, girlfriend. AIPD. <laughs> I hopefully said that right. Which is one of the more common ones within North America and Europe. And then there's the Miller-Fisher syndrome, which is also known as the MFS, which is a subtype more common in Asia. Wait, why? It just is. This one is, <laughs> it just starts within the eye and can affect, and can also affect the gait. So the acute motor axonal neuropathy, also known as the AMAN, is the acute motor sensory axonal Neuropathy, which is less common within the U.S., but more common within China, Japan, and Mexico. So these symptoms are usually, for GBS, are usually common to come on very quick, worsen over within hours to days. And these unexplained sensations, such as tingling feet or hands, pain starting in the leg or the back, weakness on either both sides of the body, which is typical symptoms causing patients to seek medical attention, and these symptoms can affect breathing, arms and legs, facial tone, causing like widespread peripheral nerve damage. And in addition to these symptoms, there's, like I said, respiratory issues, changes within the heart rate and blood pressure, difficulty with eye movement, double vision, pain, pins and needle sensations within the hands and feet, tingling in the lower extremities and rapidly spreading to the upper extremities and weakness starts in the lower body and spreads to the upper extremities and definitely affecting that gait pattern. So you're probably thinking to yourself, well, what the heck, Maggie, how do they even diagnose this kind of situation? Yeah. Even and I'm thinking everybody gets an NG tube. So <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So these initial signs and symptoms are very widely vary. So therefore, like the early diagnosis is definitely difficult for physicians. But the key diagnostic findings will often include symptoms being rapid with that recent onset, patients reporting abnormal sensations, such as that pain, numbness, or tingling, as well as that absent or diminished deep tendon reflexes or weaker limbs, and then abnormal nerve-conducted findings, which is typically, especially within the slower condition, conduction. And for some patients, a recent history of a viral infection also kind of assists with what's going on. So the individual that I saw and things like that, she did have a trach because of her inability mm -hmm. to breathe. She did have a peg tube as well because of the need for her nutrition overall. And when I saw her, the only thing that she could start doing is, is that she was able to communicate effectively. Facial movements and things were very good. However, her limbs were very, very weak and she was unable to move basically anything from like the mid chest down. Did she recover it? So as far as I am aware, after the fact and so forth, she did recover through time, I was seeing her within the acute care setting. So she discharged from us um, a few weeks later, and she was able to move both arms pretty well. But she, I believe, went to an LTAC at that time. This was a very long time ago. So, mm. And there is recovery in relation to movement and so forth. Sometimes people still do have some lingering limitations 
and things, but we do seem to have a lot of effect, not only I'm sure within the outpatient setting as well, but within that acute and like mid acute level. So inpatient rehab facilities, LTACs, um, as well as like that acute onset. So what kind of happens is, is with all this occurring and when it comes to like the swallow and so forth, you have some limitation within like oral motor coordination, the conscious, like those abilities to swallow just in general, proper positioning, head control, all of that can kind of lead to some limitations. Some interventions that can be done is as the patient kind of continues to regain more of that effectiveness is your kind of your traditional therapies, your interventions that Katie has talked about before as well. And the things that I've kind of cued into as they continue to recover such as the EMST 150, oral, like just the oral care in general. There's the McNeil that can be have an in, impact as well. And then continuing overall with the instrumentation and so forth too, to kind of assist with that intervention. Exercises shouldn't, can de- lead to some like fatiguing overall. So we do kind of want to yeah. make sure that we kind of allow these people to work as much as they can. And then Don't overwork the system because you don't want to cause some sort of like tremor of some sort of just some discomfort from the patient in general. So this is the kind of process too that you kind of want to be rigorous, but don't overdo it. So please allow those breaks just in general too for all patients taking that into consideration depending on the disease process. Oh my goodness. I could not do what y'all do, ladies. (laughs) Like I did six weeks at a nursing home, but my grandma raised me and like, I just wanted to hug all the old people and was like, and I'm out. I'm done. Like, this is not for me. Like, no, y'all, I'm going to throw you a curveball. You have a audience of folks that either are treating adults or they want to treat adults. What advice could you give them? What's the takeaway from everything that you have become as a speech pathologist? What do you want folks to learn from you in this one moment. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> oh, God, there's no pressure. Keep, yeah. <laughs> keep educating yourself, honestly, and find really good mentors in the field. The Medical SLP Collective is a great place to start to get some good research and evidence-based practice and good mentorship. But that's honestly the saving grace in our field is finding people who will help you, you along up. the way and being open to learning new things and continually learning the new research that comes out and new ways to treat our patients. I mean, when I first started, I was told that there really wasn't a treatment for ALS from a speech standpoint or like a speech pathology standpoint. And that, you know, there wasn't a whole lot we could do other than, you know, continue to evaluate them to document where they're at. And now like, look at the treatment options that we discussed today. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And, okay. and two, like treatment in general for all neurological diseases are constantly evolving through the course due to the progressive nature or even like worsening over time. So being aware of like the, once again, what we've kind of, what you touched on before too, Michelle, about, you know, expectations and those kinds of things, you know, that information that we're just part of an interdisciplinary team And we have these conversations with each team member as well as the family. So that way we're able to meet the wants and needs as well as provide that education. So that way we're making sure that their goals and things like that are well understood and the ways that we can support them. 
And then coming back to with what the comment was before is, is speech pathology and like even the treatment of swallowing disorders in general is still pretty young. So we're, Mm -hmm. it's constantly changing. So sometimes things that even just a few years ago that you thought were effective may not necessarily be functional, like at this point in time. Mm -hmm. So once again, to trying to even find like a good buddy and being aware like, Hey, like, I'm not quite sure about this. I may need to kind of look into this and being approachable to other speech language pathologists. I know that Sometimes some people get a little intimidated about supervision and so forth too, but there is something in once again, giving back and then allowing yourself to, to realize, Hey, like, I think I need to get a little bit stronger in this. And I'm sure that there's somebody out there that I can reach out to. And then also too, Hey, if you are into research, start a research. It's as simple as like a simple case study and you can submit it to somebody that can help kind of spur more research in an area that maybe you you haven't been able to find successfully on a PubMed search. Job well done. Yes. Mm -hmm. Only thing I have to add is folks, make sure that when you're doing your research, that you verify the source of the information that you are pursuing. Trust, but verify. We are pouring our, well, let's be honest, Maggie and Katie are pouring their muchness into you and I am their comedic sidekick for the last hour. (laughs) But that's just it. We're giving you information as, as we know it and don't necessarily follow everything that you see on social media and make sure that when you post a question and you're seeking the wisdom and the counsel of elders, and they may not necessarily always be older than you, that like she mentioned, Med SLP Collective, the ASHA SIG 13, those are viable, trustworthy resources. Yeah, so the Informed beware. SLP is also very good too with what they have oh, yeah. to offer as well. Oh, she, mm-hmm. Yes, she's fantastic. Yes. But again, those are vetted, trustworthy services. So just soapbox conclusion. All right. If you have not done so already, and I am sure this many episodes in you have, but if you have not, I highly recommend that you check out Dysphagia Outreach Project on Instagram and check out Dysphagia Outreach Project on their website and on Facebook and volunteer, share of your time, share of your talents. If you are with a company and can donate product or resource, that's always greatly appreciated. Ladies, thank you so very much. Y'all, I apologize that we're over, but today was worth it. Thank you, Michelle, so much. Thank you. Hey, friends. Thank you so much for listening to Understanding Dysphagia. Remember that if you'd like to earn credit for this episode, complete the accompanying audio course registered for ASHA CEUs on speechtherapypd.com. And if you are interested in joining SpeechTherapyPD.com, I have some exciting news. This month, in honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, June 1st to June 30th, 2021, for every registration with SpeechTherapyPD.com that uses the coupon code capital D, capital O, capital P for Dysphagia Outreach Project, $10 will come off every single subscription, every price whether you want the little package or the big package, and that $10 will in turn be donated to Dysphagia Outreach Project. So if you want this episode that grew your evidence-based practice to pay it forward a little bit more, join speechtherapypd.com and don't forget to use the coupon code DOP for Dysphagia Outreach Project. Happy learning, y'all.